Welcome to the latest episode of Public Power Now. I'm Paul Schimpoli, News Director for APPA. Our guest in this episode is John Godfrey, Senior Government Relations Director at APPA, who's here to discuss recent key developments on Capitol Hill and in federal agencies uh, affecting public power utilities. John, thanks for joining us. No problem. Happy to be here. Great. So, John, I um, wanted to start a conversation with something that's that's timely uh, in terms of uh, what's transpired this week. Um, you know, as, as you know, that <clears throat> there was recent congressional passage of the Fiscal Responsibility Act, which is a two-year budget deal to lift the debt limit through 2024. As of this recording on June 2nd, uh, President Biden has yet to sign the bill into law, but he's expected to do so by the time this episode is posted. So in against that backdrop, could you talk about what's included in the measure of interest to public power in the broader energy sector? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there's the broader you know, implications of just getting this issue resolved. I mean, any unsettling of the financial markets uh, makes it difficult for folks trying to, to get into the uh, financial markets. If you had a, a debt issuance, that could be challenging. So it's good to get that resolved. Uh, and out of the way. But it, it, you know, in the, the package itself, well, most of it is not related to our issues, but really for us foremost, the package includes uh, the text of the Builder Act of 2023. Uh, this is a bill that was sponsored by Congressman Garrett Graves. Uh, he's a Republican from Louisiana. Uh, it was included in, in a broader House-passed energy permitting reform bill that passed earlier this year called the Lower Energy Costs Act. We were generally supportive of the provisions in the Builder Act, uh, which would modernize the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA as folks call it, as well as establish deadlines for action. In addition, the bill uh, directs the uh, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, uh, or NERC, uh, to study uh, total current transfer capabilities and provide recommendations to strengthen reliability and meet and maintain a transfer capability between neighboring transmission regions. Uh, APVA views this as, as, as generally positive, especially compared to other proposals which were uh, under consideration for inclusion in the final package. It is uh, one idea that would, re- would have required uh, a pre- prescriptive percentage of interregional transfer capacity. We're not in support of that. Um, <clears throat> almost important um, uh, was what was not in this bill. It does include what's called a, an administrative pay-as-you-go provision, which basically says if you take administration actions that, that increase the deficit, you have to take other administration actions that de- that, that that decrease it. So you sort of net out pay-as-you-go. Uh, but it does not extend or expand uh, statutory pay-as-you-go provisions. People who listen to call may be aware of these. These are the, the ones that in the past have meant cuts to make payments uh, to issuers of Build America bonds. Uh, those are not in this bill. So that's, that's uh, good to have. Also, it does not include provisions from an earlier House-passed debt limit bill that would have repealed the bulk of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, including refundable direct pay tax credits for public power. Those provisions that repeal, so those pair back, may crop back up again in future legislation. I think we're in a good position right now related to refundable direct pay credits, only because I think members across all parties are really beginning to understand uh, that uh, for energy tax credits to be of direct benefit to public power and co-ops, you really need these provisions. So that's a nice segue to my next question as it relates to energy tax credits. As you know, in May, the Treasury Department released guidance on domestic content rules for energy tax credits as modified under the Inflation Reduction Act. So how big of a deal is this guidance in terms of providing some clarity to public power utilities as they look to take advantage of energy tax credits? So I think it is a big deal. And and um, thank you for asking. I mean, just by way of background, in the Inflation Reduction Act, which modified 
you know, the investment tax credit and production tax credit and other uh, energy uh, tax provisions. There are these domestic content rules, uh, and they're sort of both carrot and stick. Uh, on the one hand, if you meet these domestic content rules, uh, then you get a 10 percent uh, increase in the investment tax credit or 10 percentage point, excuse me, increase in the investment tax credit and 10 percent increase in the production tax credit. Pretty nice for entities trying to uh, take advantage of this refundable direct pay mechanism. Tax up entities that, that don't have any tax liability that need this refundable uh, uh, mechanism uh, to monetize tax credits. It's a stick. You must meet these domestic content rules uh, to qualify for uh, refundable direct pay credits. So it's really an existential issue uh, for public power. Uh, if you do not meet them, you don't get the credit. Now, there are a couple of waivers, uh, and, and I won't get into too deeply in the weights here. We've been watching this closely as a result. And what we've been saying all along is the rules must be clear, simple, and reliable. We've got uh, utilities that range in size from literally dozens of customers uh, to millions of customers. Uh, and that range means that, that this guidance has got to be workable. Uh, and I'll tell you, you know, we're looking at it. We've, you know, we've been working with Treasury and with uh, continue to work with uh, congressional tax staff on this issue. We're a little concerned that, that uh, at least right now, the guidance that came out, which sets just the domestic content rules for the, the carrot side, are going to be kind of tough. Well, uh, just quickly, you, you're going to have to prove that the stuff in your project are all made in America. And how you do so is going to be complicated. For example, let's say you've got a solar farm, uh, and that solar farm includes applic applicable project components, uh, such as you know, the bits and pieces that make it up, like a uh, photovoltaic module would be a product component or, or a racking system. Uh, part of that that's composed of product components, such as like the adhesive used to glue uh, the uh, uh, seams and seals. Uh, now, part of that would be a subcomponent, say polydimethylsiloxane, which is a component of glue, which I had to look up on the internet. So you could find it, see, be in a situation where you had to prove the cost of everything, not just for the solar farm, not just for the photo photovoltaic module, but down to the ad adhesive. You don't have to prove, you know, where the polydimethyl siloxane was was uh, made, but you do have to get all the way down to the glue, and that's pretty deeply down. Two, it's not the price you pay for it, but rather the cost. So you're going to have to get your manufacturers or your, your suppliers to tell you what these, these components cost them. That's going to be a tough conversation to have. So we're still looking at it. Uh, Treasury has, has said that you know, the door is open. We're, I mean, I think we're all uh, hoping to go in the right in the same direction. They, are, I mean, they, they get the idea that uh, public power and co-ops, we're partners in this, I think, really are an, exist, uh, an essential part of uh, the build out of these new diverse uh, resource mix. Uh, so I think they're committed to making it work. They're, they're committed to making direct pay work, but uh, it's going to take some work to get what we've seen so far into shape that it will work. In terms of my next question, um, you know, as you know, in, in May, um, there was a notice of funding opportunity for the De Department of Agriculture's Rural Utility Service Powering Affordable Clean Energy or PACE Loan Forgiveness Program. So can you offer additional details on this program and how public power utilities benefit from participating in the PACE Loan Forgiveness Program? Sure. So one, so the, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has the Rural Utilities Service uh, Office, and I think 
maybe several dozen public power utilities have made use of this over the years. It's just not something we go to very often. Uh, rural electric cooperatives really make more use of this, partly because programs generally out of there are uh, loan guarantees or loans at uh, a miscible uh, bond rate. Well, we don't need to go to the USDR, you know, USDA to get a municipal bond rate. We can issue bonds and get a municipal bond rate. So there's not been a lot of draw there for us, but this is new. This, before, this uh, Powering Affordable Clean Energy Program provides not only uh, uh, competitive rates uh, for, for borrowing, but also loan forgiveness. Uh, and so <clears throat> if you've got a small uh, a project that serves uh, rural customers, where it actually has to be the, the majority of the product, so 50.1% product serves rural customers, you can qualify. Um, and if you qualify, just as a base amount, 20% of the, of the uh, loan proceeds will be forgiven when you place it into service. That's pretty good. Uh, if you meet additional qualifications, so if you're in an energy community, you can get uh, up to 40% loan forgiveness. And if you're a tribal entity or, or one of our, our territorial uh, members, you can get up to 60%. That's pretty good. Uh, and so, well, even better still yet, uh, it can stack with some of these tax credits. So you could get uh, loan forgiveness and a tax credit uh, on top of that. Uh, so that's a pretty good program. You know, the, the, the only sort of caveat here is it really is intended for, for rural, smaller uh, entities. So it's going to be projects no larger than 100. Well, you can't borrow more than 100 million from this. It could be a project larger than 100 million, but they're not going to lend you more than 100 million for mm -hmm. it. Two, uh, it can't be less than a million. I think there's just a lot, too much paperwork to justify something for a smaller project. So there's some real opportunities here. Again, of our 2,000 members, 1,600 of them are rural utilities. So could per se qualify these projects. Another um, option would be joint action agencies. Uh, joint action agencies serve 800 uh, rural uh, utilities, 800 rural public power utilities. They could perhaps uh, issue uh, some of these, uh, uh, or sorry, finance some of these projects on behalf of their customers or create projects that would serve their customers. So sort of different ways of getting the same way and having a larger entity be involved in the project, but still having these rural customers served. Uh, so we're looking at a lot of those different uh, uh, options. You know, the 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 time uh, is running quickly. Uh, they put it out, out the announcement of this program uh, last month, and now we've got a, a three-month window starting uh, June 30th to to send what is called a letter of intent. You have to provide some in, uh, details, not every jot and tittle that you might have to have for a formal application, but you have to have letter of intent filed with USDA. It's going to be uh, a come as uh, <coughs> You know, come as they get them approach. They're not going to wait them, wait to start issuing. Uh, so pretty narrow window, uh, but a great opportunity. For my next couple of questions, I wanted to turn our attention to Capitol Hill. You know, as with the agencies we've already discussed, there's been a lot of uh, action of relevance to public power uh, recently uh, in Congress, starting with, uh, you know, last month in May, Senator Wicker from Mississippi, a Republican, and Senator Debbie Stabenow, Democrat from Michigan, introduced legislation to reinstate the ability to issue tax-exempt advanced refunding bonds. Can you offer additional details on this legislation um, and its importance to public power utilities? And has similar legislation been introduced in the House? Sure. That's a good question. I appreciate that. Advanced refunding is sort of like your mortgage, right? If the interest rates get high, or sorry, if you if the interest rates were high and now they're getting lower, or if you just want to refinance for a shorter period of time, you can do that with the mortgage, uh, and you know you can pocket the savings. 
Well, a issuer of a municipal bond can do the same thing. However, there's a catch, which is when you issue a bond, the investor says, look, we don't want you to be able to do this all the time, just some of the time. So you have to wait at least 10 years after you issue your bond before you can refund it, refinance. Well, previously, you could do a thing called an advanced refunding bond, which basically let you uh, refund your bond prior to that 10-year window, uh, pay off your you know, defees your existing debt, and go from there. Uh, that advanced refunding bond, you could do one of them. It was exempt from tax, just like all other municipal bonds are exempt from tax. Well, in the 2017 Tax Act, uh, that was repealed uh, to raise $17 billion for tax reform. This bill that uh, Senators Wicker and Stabato introduced in May uh, would turn that back around. Allow people to issue one advanced refunding bond for every you know, bond issuance that would be tax exempt. That's good for uh, public power. It's good for customers. Typically, uh, advanced refundings save at a minimum three uh, percent of the uh, net present value of the cost of borrowing. Typically, it's six or seven or eight uh, percent. This is a good deal for customers. The savings are passed on uh, to them, or there's uh, more resources available for additional investment. Either way, the customer benefits. There is a, uh, a bill that's been introduced to the House. This is by uh, Congressman Kustoff, a member of the Ways and Means Committee, and uh, Dutch Ruppersberger. He's uh, one of the co-leads of the House Municipal Finance Caucus. Uh, it's called the Investing in Our Communities Act. So there's good bipartisan support in the House and Senate. I think some of the uh, the opposition to this bill really didn't have to do so much with the substance, but rather sort of a knee-jerk reaction uh, to undoing the 2017 Act. I think there are fewer people around that helped pass that, and there may be a willingness to look at this with fresh eyes and consider it. So I think uh, I think we've got good chances. We're going to work on it. Uh, we might even uh, try and get it into a new ec- economic bill that may be moving through the House uh, as early as June. Cross your fingers there. So in terms of uh, sticking with the topic of Congress, uh, in April, Senators Rubio and Scott, both Republicans from Florida, reintroduced the FEMA Loan Interest Payment Relief Act in the Senate. Um, similar in, uh, companion legislation has been introduced in the House by Representatives Neil Dunn, Soto, and Congressman Graves. So uh, it's my understanding that Florida Public Power Utilities have led the effort to advance this legislation, which APPA strongly supports. Um, can you offer additional details on this legislation? And again, sticking with the theme of how it's going to affect public power utilities. Sure. Uh- Appreciate that. Um, first, yeah, no, you're 100 percent right. I mean, this is obviously going to affect um, uh, public power utilities throughout the U.S., but the, but the, the Florida folks have really uh, taken the lead on this issue, and with a lot of issues related to the Stafford Act and getting money out of the Federal Emergency uh, Management Administration. They're they're notorious for being slow in paying, and then oftentimes long after the fact, uh, seeking to to claw back. Uh, the money that they gave out. So the bill here um, sort of is is the third chapter uh, in legislation here. The, the, the first being, you know, there's a bill that said, okay, look, once you submitted a claim for a public assistance after disaster, so your utility, you've got costs incurred for reinstating power, you submit that claim. And once you submitted it formally, FEMA has three years uh, to uh, decide whether it's going to try and claw back that money. 
Right? They got to get you to pay you, and then if they get your call back, you got three years after the this, the, the final issue is settled. And that we pushed through Congress, and now it's in the law. The second chapter is FEMA <laughs> kind of doing an end run, saying, "Okay, that's fine, but guess what? We can pause that three year window anytime we want because anytime we ask a question about uh, your claim, it's no longer the final uh, claim." Because we've got a question, and therefore you know, the, the three years starts all over. Uh, so they kind of put that on its head. And so this is a, a, a way of turning around and saying, "Look, we want you to have skin in the game." And the way it does that is, says, "Look, I've, I'm a utility, and I've got I'm going to get reimbursed for costs associated with recovery from a disaster, uh, and I have to wait years and years to get recovery. I might have to take out a loan uh, to offset those costs." I've got, you know. Do not have a lot of resources around lying around for this stuff. So if I take out a loan, uh, and which is eventually reimbursed by FEMA, the, the proceeds are sorry used for to, to offset reimbursement by FEMA. Well, the interest on that loan FEMA has to pay. Now it's not the full interest rate. The initial draft was the full interest rate, and they kind of uh, pared it back a bit to uh, the lesser of the the actual interest you're paying or the prime rate. So it's not. 100% reimbursement, but at least it means FEMA's got uh, skin in the game. And the idea is, one, it addresses a real need. We're sitting around waiting for our money, we're, and we're wasting money on interest while waiting for FEMA to get off the dime, pun intended. Two, it does make sure that, that FEMA actually now suddenly has a, a financial interest in getting this done sooner rather than later. So uh, we're supportive of the bill. Uh, I think there's a, there's a, a, a real effort to get this done. Uh, we're you know, taking a different tactic. We're working pretty closely with the co-ops on this issue. Uh, we're also going to try and get some of the other uh, state and local associations, League of Cities, Conference of Mayors, National Association of Counties uh, involved to see if we can get this over the uh, finish line uh, this Congress. Well, John, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Um, I know we covered a lot of ground today, but I think it's safe to say that there's a lot of actionable um, intelligence that our members can derive from this. And so I, I really appreciate your taking the time to speak with us. Well, it really is a pleasure. I'd say it's always help, helpful to me to, to, to uh, take a, a step back and kind of do an overview. And uh, two, I will tell you, none of that stuff would be going anywhere but for our members. Uh, mm-hmm. to, to keep them informed so they can advocate uh, means that these, these things get done because they, they weren't up on the hill asking for it. It just wouldn't happen. So I really greatly appreciate uh, the work that our that our members, those listening, those who are active, uh, engage on these issues. Great. Thanks again, John. Yes, sir. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Power Now, which is produced by Julio Guerrero, graphic and digital designer at APPA. I'm Paul Champoli, and we'll be back next week with more from the world of public power.